Welcome to The Commentary, a weekly conversation about vision, worship, and life at Grace Presbyterian Church. I'm Mark Bertrand, the pastor of Grace, and my fellow commenter in today's episode is Cameron Brooks. One of our favorite things to do on The Commentary, something we don't do enough of and are always talking about how we want to do more of it, is talking about what we've been reading and recommending books for our listeners to enjoy. In this episode, I'm going to make a book recommendation that's not only good reading, but will be extraordinarily helpful to anyone who's heard me talk about how a theology of grace needs to produce a culture of grace. Believe it or not, it's possible to believe in salvation by grace, yet create a culture that has a lot in common with legalism. The book I'm going to recommend will help shed light on how that's possible and provide a much-needed antidote to the problem as well. Week before last, we had quite a weather event here in Sioux Falls. Cameron had fortunately gone to Florida for the week, so he missed out. (laughs) on our drama, but I did not miss out. Uh, We had 90 mile an hour winds, and in my neighborhood, a lot of trees were blown down. In fact, I was looking right out the window as my neighbor's big pine tree came down before my very eyes. And of course, as you can imagine, the power went out. So here at the Bertrand household, we were without power for about 48 hours. And the funny thing about that is, like in the overall scheme of things, that's not a hardship. But when I tell people, oh, we didn't have power for 48 hours, it's amazing the sympathy <laughs> that I get as if we really suffered. Yeah. Um, nobody had power, you know, 110, 120 years ago, but we've come to rely on it so much. Well, we had an interesting 48 hours without electricity. And one of the things that we got to do was... Uh, do a little reading (laughs) because (laughs) there were no other options for entertainment. And I found myself absorbed into a book. Now, one of the things we like to do in the commentary from time to time is talk about books that we're reading. And I just got sucked into a book that I wanted to talk about because I think it is a great book for anyone at Grace who's looking for something to read. Uh, This will give you real insight into what I'm going to argue some really important distinctives of our church. And it's also just a fascinating read. It's Sinclair Ferguson's book, The Whole Christ. So a little bit of a story here. Um, A few weeks ago, I was ordering books. And in order to uh, get free shipping, I had to order a certain amount. So I was at Presbytery. And I'm adding books to my cart. And so I texted Lori and I said, are there any books that you want me to add for you? I need to get over this certain amount. And so she texted me with some some books she would like. And one of them was Sinclair Ferguson's The Whole Christ. That was on her desk. And we happened to be sitting in her office without power. And I just grabbed it. And I didn't intend to to get too deeply into it, uh, Tim Keller wrote the introduction. So I just kind of read that and then set it aside. And I was like, well, that's cool. I, I'll, you know, maybe I'll come back later and then 
know, two minutes later, I picked the book up, read a chapter, set it down, picked it back up, read another chapter, two chapters, and suddenly I'm just hooked. Mm. So I thought I'd talk a little bit about this book. Uh, Cameron, you've not read The Whole Christ, right? Correct. Okay. So I'm going to make a recommendation to you. Okay. And then everyone listening can kind of benefit from it. So Sinclair Ferguson's book, The Whole Christ, is about a theological controversy in the early 1700s called the Marrow Controversy. Mm. I'm sure, Cameron, that you're very familiar with that. I'm not. Really? (laughs) (laughs) That that does not surprise me at all. Marrow, no. So I think there's kind of two tracks we might go down. We might talk a little bit about the controversy just to sort of set the stage and then talk about some of the lessons Mm -hmm. that uh, are helpful. So if you don't know, Sinclair Ferguson is a Scottish pastor and theologian. He was a professor at Westminster Seminary for years. Uh, I had lunch with him once. It was really cool to be able to pick his brain. And a good friend of mine was a student of his and kind of set that up. And so I've always had a soft spot for all Scottish theologians, but Sinclair Ferguson in particular. And and one of the things that he has always been known for is some lectures that he gave on this controversy, the Marrow controversy. And in the book, he tells the story in, in I think it was 1980, he was invited to come from Scotland to the States to speak at a conference that was what are the lessons of the marrow controversy? Mm-hmm. So he was surprised anybody in the States had heard of this, but in Scotland, it was a big deal. And you can kind of understand why when you hear the story. So I don't want to go too deep into the, the inside baseball, but, but what you kind of need to know is this. So in the early 1700s, there was an examination of an ordination candidate. And he was asked this question, basically, um, I'll paraphrase here, but but the the question was, should people have to show signs of repentance before they're offered Christ in the gospel? So should we preach Christ to everyone, or should we preach Christ to those who are showing some repentance, showing some work of the Spirit already mm-hmm. in their hearts? And it seemed obvious to the presbytery asking the question that that of course you should preach Christ to everyone and not just to those who show repentance but in the larger church it was considered to be antinomian to take that view so antinomian means uh, so nomos is law so uh, basically lawless mm-hmm. you know uh, an antinomian is a person who thinks there's no relevance to God's law anymore. And so this ended up being condemned. The The guy's ordination exam ran aground, and, and the presbytery was called into question for asking this question. And so th- this controversy would have died there, except there's a guy, Thomas Boston, who was there, and he confided in another presbyter that he actually thought this, the presbytery was correct, that, that of course you should offer Christ to everyone, uh, the free offer of the gospel, you know, without regard to whether or not people are already sort of open to it or, or whatever. Sure. And the reason that he did is because years earlier he had read a book that had just made a lot of sense to him. And the book was by Edward Fisher, 
It's from the 1640s, and it was called The Marrow of Modern Divinity. Mm, this is getting juicy. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> right, right. So, so the marrow controversy, the marrow being referenced is this book. So, okay, so far so good. Does, does that make sense? Any questions <laughs> one, about that? One question. Yeah. Is, is the, the concern that Christ should be preached or not to someone showing signs of repentance or that signs of repentance are necessary for one to receive? to have salvation. Yeah, yeah. So what's basically going on here is everyone involved is a Calvinist. Everyone involved, this is yeah. the church of Scotland. They're all Presbyterians, right? They all subscribe to the Westminster confession, but they understand that only those who are elect can truly possess faith mm-hmm. And that there will be certain sort of manifestations of that. So the Holy Spirit will regenerate those who are called. And essentially what they're doing is they're trying to see signs of that before they believe a person is entitled to that that call to faith. Sure. Uh, you might think of it this way. It's, it's sort of the, the, the dilemma over whether or not we can say as Presbyterians that, that Christ died for you. And if we're hesitant to say that, if we're worried, like, I don't want to say Christ died for you because what if he didn't? You know, what if you're not one of the elect? It's, it's a scruple like that. Yeah. It's a concern like that. Like, we're trying to see some evidence that this person is elect so that we're not, like, offering them something that isn't really theirs. Yeah, and impossible for them to grasp. Exactly. Know, theoretically. Exactly. Now, when you say that out loud, I mean, that that should already start kind of unraveling itself, right? Because we are always at great pains to say that, that like, we don't know who is chosen by God, right? Mm-hmm. We, we can see, like, fruit, but we, we don't see the, the heart. And so they were essentially trying to discern these things uh, by looking at the fruit, like is there some sign of of the work of the spirit? And if so, then let me give you kind of the the word that you're entitled to. So that's the nature of the controversy. And for modern ears, you know, we already know which side is is the one we're on. You know, I don't I don't think many people listening to this will be saying, well, yeah, I, I think we definitely want people to show some repentance before we tell them about Jesus. Right. Of course not. Yeah. And, um, and so the, the marrow controversy was over that question related questions. And, and the, the way that the, the term that's often used, it, it has to do with the free offer of the gospel, whether the, the gospel should be offered freely to all sinners as sinners, or if it should be sort of offered as sort of a, a like this is only for, those who are, mm-hmm. are, are the elect. Right. So, so far, so good. The marrow of modern divinity is a fascinating book. I have a copy of it that I found at Powell's in uh, Portland. Mm-hmm. And it's basically a dialogue like, like a, you know, a work of Plato where you have a new believer, a, evangelist who's called evangelista (laughs) and then you have an antinomian and a legalist and the four of them are in this dialogue about christianity so you can kind of map them out in a way you know where you have the the evangelist let's say at the center and then on one side you'll have 
the antinomian who, who wants to dispense with the law entirely. And then the other side, you'll have the legalist. And we're meant to understand that the gospel represents a kind of third way. Like it's not the total abolition of the law, but it's also not legalism. It's it's something else mm-hmm. where there's a, a role for law, but but it's it's in a larger context of grace. Mm-hmm. So that's the 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 dialogue, the back and forth that they have, and and as a result of the dialogue, you get a really clear picture of what an antinomian view is. Um, Ferguson makes a case that you could read early Martin Luther and get a very antinomian picture where Luther earlier in his ministry had a sense of the law as only negative. You know, that was primarily there to bring us to that sense of, of condemnation and the need for grace. And once that is accomplished, (laughs) there's nothing else that the law has to contribute Mm -hmm. except bad, you know, Mm -hmm. later in his ministry though, Luther has to balance that a little bit because he's confronted by actual antinomians <laughs> who are not as conservative as, as he sort of naturally is. And so they take it to an extreme and he's like, well, no, no, I mean, you can't do that. I mean, there's obviously still, you know, a, a role for God's law. And so we get a, a more nuanced view of, of the law in reform theology. We talk about the three uses of the law and we have kind of a, uh, a civil use, you might say, where the law sort of represents what justice would look like in a civil setting. But you also have the second use, which is the, the one that Luther emphasizes early, which is the way that it serves as a schoolmaster, bringing us under condemnation. And the third use of the law, which is it gives us a picture of what holiness looks like, mm-hmm. um, what the will of God might look like. So antinomianism is kind of just throwing the law out. So that the law is abolished, has nothing to teach us. Legalism, on the other hand, is finding, we might say, new uses for the law. Yeah. And, and this is interesting, though, because like nobody in Scotland in the 1700s is a legalist in the, like, like, the pure sense of believing keeping the law will save you. It's obviously a religion of grace. You know, they subscribe to the Westminster Confession. Arguably, the Pharisees in the New Testament are in the same boat. I mean, they, they have a religion of grace, right? The Old Testament religion is a gracious religion, and yet they've managed to make a, a sort of like a, a perspective of legalism that they view grace through. And that's the kind of legalism that this, this dialogue really brings into focus, kind of the way that people who... Uh, believe in grace, pay lip service to grace, can still take a, you know, we please him through our works, we we earn his favor and love through our works, perspective on things. And, of course, in the controversy in the Church of Scotland, that, that was the challenge, that you had people who subscribed to grace, but practiced a kind of legalism, and as a result, when they heard the gospel, it sounded to them like antinomianism. Mm-hmm. And they couldn't tell the difference between real grace and this horrible, you know, abolition of everything good in the law. <laughs> that's something I think that's, that's very 
applicable to our circumstances today. We have antinomians today. We have a lot of people who, who believe in grace because they think grace means all bets are off. Like there are no rules. It doesn't matter how you live anymore because everything is forgiven. But then you also have a lot of people who, although they believe in grace, in theory, have a very legalistic, moralistic way of approaching things. So that, ironically, even in Reformed churches, you can talk theologically about grace, but create a culture that's very pharisaical, very moralistic. Yeah. Even, even I think you can get legalistic about your doctrines of grace, you know? Like, like we have to... No, like we're not like those churches or those people. Like we believe in grace, and and all of a sudden you're, you know, you're defining who's in and who's out, and and we're the ones that are in, of course, right? Because right. of grace, yeah. Which I think is is, you know, kind of worse yeah. in a way than yeah. than just being a full bore legalist mm-hmm. because you're you're taking that that legalistic culture and you're giving it a, a doctrine of grace, which in a way like inoculates you to what grace really is. Mm. And it's one of the reasons why I think a lot of people, when they are first encountering our community, and they're like, oh, Presbyterians, Calvinists, I don't want anything to do with you, because they've had these experiences of of really sort of strident, reformed, or, or you know, air quotes, reformed yeah. people, especially on the internet, who just seem super judgmental and like like fundamentalist times a hundred and and you're like i just don't want anything to do with that well that's very far from a culture of grace and so i i get it like i understand why why that's off-putting and ferguson's book does a really good job delineating these differences so that Reading this book would help you understand the path that we are trying to travel at Grace. Why we're not antinomian, but we're also not legalists. We believe the gospel is something different than both of those things. Hmm. And it's, I should say that, so the book's not primarily about the historical controversy. It lays the groundwork so that you can appreciate these theological distinctions more. And so I just happen to like the history. And so maybe (laughs) I've perhaps gone a little bit too much into the historical stuff. No, it's, it's interesting. And, and I'd never heard about any of it before. So it's fascinating. It, it makes me think of Tim Keller's book, the prodigal God. Yes. Um, you know, where he, he uses the story of the, the prodigal son, the two sons, really, the, the older son, as kind of a, an example of legalism. And the younger son, who's antinomian in a sense, runs off and uh, is the rebellious one. But of course, is welcomed back by his father in the end. So somehow Keller tries to use that as, as the, the picture of the gospel, you know, like a picture of the gospel. And, and I'm curious... How does Ferguson define the gospel then as as not legalistic or not antinomian? Is it something something like that? Yeah, so I, I think it's a good connection to make. Mm-hmm. So uh, the prodigal God and the framework that Keller develops there, it's the same framework that you'll find in the whole Christ. I think arguably it's fleshed out a little more in the whole Christ. It's a longer book. Mm -hmm. And I think it has 
it, it draws on a lot of different sources, mm. you know, that, that, um, Keller keeps the prodigal God intentionally very simple and straightforward for yeah. a reason. Yeah. So I think you'll see the distinctions very clearly there, but, but here maybe you'll put more flesh on the categories the the key to understanding the the gospel as opposed to antinomianism or legalism maybe is found in another thing that that he does a really good job at which is this um, he says that at the heart of this controversy like the 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 error that makes this something we should go back and study again and again and again is the separation between Christ and his benefits. Mm. So if you think about the uh, order of salutis, the order of salvation, like things that happen in the process of salvation, all the way from uh, election and predestination to calling and regeneration to justification, adoption, sanctification, ultimately glorification, those categories are laid out for us in the confession of faith, and they are uh, good ways of of keeping, you know, like like a sense of all of the things that God does in order to save a sinner. Well, there's a way of approaching those things that divorces them from Christ Himself. Mm-hmm. Right? When the New Testament tells us about all of these benefits what it tells us first and foremost is that we have these things in Christ. So we have them in Christ, not separate from him. So you don't get like regeneration. You don't get glorification, you know, salvation as a thing separate from getting Jesus. And if you get Jesus, you get all of the benefits. So the focus of the gospel is not on getting the benefits, it's on getting Jesus, right? It's on knowing Christ. It's not the benefits that we offer in the gospel, it's Christ that we offer. And knowing him and being united to him is how you receive all the benefits that come to those who are in him. But it's important not to sever the benefits from Christ himself. So... These days, you know, you, you might hear a gospel presentation that, that mainly talks about the problem of sin and condemnation and that you want to avoid the penalty, the consequence, and the way to do that is to get salvation, uh, to get, get that question settled. And the way you do that is by praying this prayer, and then you will be saved and that'll be settled and, and it's good to go. And we can talk about that and, and Jesus's role seems historical like jesus had to go to the cross to make all of this possible but now that that's happened what's important is you doing what you need to do to secure the benefits right that way of talking about the gospel it's very different from how they would have talked in you know scotland in the early 1700s but it's guilty of doing the same thing which is abstracting the benefits away from the person of Christ. And then I I think as a result, we get focused on ourselves and our subjective experience of, of all those things that you mentioned, like, am I being sanctified or, or, you know, have I been justified yet? And it's all about me, 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 where am I at? Right. And so too, probably that question of the signs of repentance, it's very focused on the individual and what they're up to and not focused on Christ. So I, I take it that 
Ferguson is trying to point us back to Jesus, the whole Christ. Yes. You know, instead of ourselves. I think that's a good that's a good observation that in both cases there's a subjectivity that mm-hmm. becomes the focus. And and I do think that one of the the consequences of reading the whole Christ is you will come away with a renewed sense of the objectivity of Christ's work, mm-hmm. but also because like the, the, the inseparability of the person and the work will be like fresh in your mind. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense that there's, there's just moments reading this book where your heart leaps at the thought of Christ offered to you and, and knowing him and that being the focus of our faith, not securing the benefits. Um, not that the benefits aren't real and aren't, you know, scriptural. Obviously they are. It's just not getting the cart before the horse, not making the focus on the benefits instead of on Christ. Yeah. I think back to seminary, I took a class on Calvin and I remember it was either a professor or a book that I read on Calvin. Someone said that for Calvin, that that was the central doctrine of grace was union with Christ. You know, from, from beginning to end, it's always union with Christ. And he had this way of talking about it with the other reformers. Salvation was, I think it's extranos and intranos. Is that right? Mm-hmm. The Latin. So, Salvation, that, that objective sense that you're talking about, the externos outside of us yeah. is accomplished in, in Christ completely, fully. And yet it needs to take place intranos inside of us as well. I think our tendency can be to get too caught up on the intranos and forget about what's objective in Jesus himself. And the union with him becomes sort of like where those two things come together, obviously, you know, where my subjective experience is absorbed into his objective salvation. Yeah. And Ferguson actually attributes some of this to the fact that in the seminaries, they weren't reading Calvin anymore. Of course. (laughs) That uh, if they'd just been reading Calvin, then then that that Christocentric Mm -hmm. view would have been front and center as it is with him. But they had sort of come to rely on later works. And he actually has an interesting way of visualizing this where there are two famous uh, charts. They're kind of uh, symbolic charts that show what salvation looks like visually. And they're designed for maybe illiterate or or not as literate people, but, but I I think they're super handy to look at. Anyway, but, but so one of them is by William Perkins. And so that's going to be in the 1500 and that's kind of a early Puritan. It's based on, I think, a, a work of Beza's. And in Perkins's chart, all of the benefits of salvation that are in that Ordo Salutis radiate out from Christ, almost like spokes, you know, and the hub is Christ. Mm-hmm. John Bunyan of Pilgrim's Progress fame, you know, in the next century does something similar. But in his representation, those benefits don't all radiate out from Christ. They're links in a chain that that Christ is in, in, in the Trinity is is kind of at the beginning of. So they flow from him hmm. and connect to one another and almost give the impression of being 
uh, like stages, you know, way stations, more of a, a sense of how like the classic Roman Catholic theology would have seen the Ordo Salutis or medieval Roman Catholic theology would have seen the Ordo Salutis where it's like uh, stages in the process. Right. You know, you, you get through this stage and once you accomplish that, then you can move on to the next stage. The reform view is not like that. Like it, it's like God is doing all of these things. We're going to break them up into discrete categories so that we can kind of appreciate and understand them. But we understand them also as like an organic whole mm-hmm. that, that God is doing in the way that God does things. And so, um, Ferguson argues that, that over time, there's just kind of a sense in which the the benefits just are removed from the person more and more. And that that's the tendency that continually plagues us so that there's this constant need to get back to the person of Christ and not just the the, the work or the benefits of Christ, but seeing them all as one. And thus, the title, The Whole Christ. Right. Well, this has been good. Lori, if you're out there, I'm going to have to borrow your copy. <laughs> I do. I would love to read this book. I've read actually very little of Ferguson in general, so this would maybe be a good place to start. Yeah, and Ferguson is fantastic because, you know, he is, like Tim Keller, um, theological chops, but but essentially a pastoral right. approach. And so I think especially for people who are interested in getting more theology, but want it in a pastoral way and in a kind of a more accessible way i think ferguson is a great author to pursue that way cool well i'll choose the book next time and uh thanks for this review awesome Thanks for listening to the commentary. If you've enjoyed this episode, you can rate us on your favorite podcast app and share episodes with your friends on social media. You can subscribe to the commentary on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. To find out more about us online, visit graceforsufalls.org.